podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is now supported by Harry's, a product I've been looking for for a long time. I was getting fed up with the exorbitant cost and inaccessibility of razor blades, and then Harry's came along to offer a great shaving experience at a reasonable price and without the pain of having to hunt them out at the back of some out-of-the-way chemists. The ergonomically designed shaving handle, the smooth glide of the blades, and especially the cool feel of the shave gel, which doesn't reek like disinfectant, is a great package, and it's delivered to your door. Get your special trial set for just £3.95 at harrys.com forward slash the analyst. That's harrys.com forward slash the analyst. Hello there, it's the analyst inside cricket, Simon Hughes in England, staring out on a grey day, and Simon Mann in New Zealand, where you've been watching uh, England's triumph in the one-day series. I played really well in that last match in Christchurch. On today's show, we're going to talk later to Mike Brearley, the former England captain, about how England might approach the Test Series coming up in New Zealand, how Joe Root might just adapt his captaincy a bit and maybe how he might get even more out of England's fantastic frontline fast bowlers, Stuart Broad and, of course, Jimmy Anderson. Interesting news just out, by the way, is that England are changing their selection policy. National selector James Whitaker has been stood down after 10 years' service and England are going to take a new approach to selection with a new national selector and an England selector and also the head coach is going to be part of selection panel and they're going to use a network of scouts to go around the country and check out the talent and give England a better chance of picking the right people. I think it's a bit of an admission really that the selection panel wasn't really working and that they need more of a network of real experts to pick up all the the talent there is around. So a complete change for England in the selection process. It'll be interesting to see what results that produce ultimately. But first, uh, we should look back at England's fantastic performance in that one-day series, the final game in Christchurch, which actually uh, England walloped New Zealand to seal their sixth one-day series in a row, Simon. It was absolutely ruthless from England. Savage hitting from Johnny Bairstow. The series in the balance after a remarkable game in Dunedin, a game that England you felt should have won from the position they were in, 267 for one, not going on to make 380 like they should have done and like I think most people expected them to do so if they got that. And I don't think New Zealand would have had a, a chance of chasing it down. What was interesting was we got to the final game and you thought, hold on a second, really England should have won this series before now they, they felt it felt as if they were the better side man for man the better side New Zealand had some excellent individual performances mainly from from Ross Taylor 200 to match winning hundreds so he got to the last game and he thought well hold on a second England sh- should be winning this series and suddenly they're into a decider which is no bad thing in a way because there aren't going to be these type of games there aren't going to be many of these type of games before the next World Cup. And, of course, they have a whole load of group games, as we've discussed before, and then into a, a knockout semi-final. So it's useful to have practice at those real on-the-day matches, and that's what England got. And they produced a, a fabulous performance, efficient with the ball, and then brutal, savage, whatever adjective you like to describe with the bat. And Johnny Bairstow, absolutely sensational. It wasn't uh, quite in keeping with the setting. The, uh, it looked like you were in the, either Switzerland or possibly actually Scotland in, on, a, on a rare summer's day in Scotland because the setting, that the mountains, the, the, the green hills, the lush outfield, the 
spectators sprawling on the bank. It had an incredibly sort of bucolic setting. You actually are in New Zealand, are you? Yeah, well, it is, it is a lovely setting, that the Hagley Oval. Of course, it's there, and it's used by New Zealand cricket now because of Lancaster Park, d- destroyed by the earthquake, devastated by the earthquake. They've not been able to use that ground since the earthquake in Christchurch. They had to find a, a new venue, and they've come up with Hagley Park, and it's got those wonderful grassy banks all around. It was an idyllic day, apart from if you're a, a, a real die-hard Kiwi supporter and watch your team get thrashed. It's an idyllic day. That it was beautiful weather, absolutely wonderful weather, and you get to lounge on the grassy banks. You get the, the chance to take your one-handed catch and win $50,000 as well. And there are a few sixes launched into the over the ropes and onto the grassy banks, which no one could benefit from on Saturday. There's, um, there's a lot of spectators wearing kind of uh, orange vests. That's uh, it. Which you I have guess to is wear part one. of the sponsors thing, is it? You have to wear one to win the 50,000. You have to be wearing one and take a one-handed catch. And there are a few near things. There's one just in front of us, and a, a gentleman who looked about 55, 60, as he could see it, the ball coming towards him. And there was no one around him. Normally what happens is there are people around you all going for it as well, so you get knocked off your stride. But this man was on his own. Well, he, he was there with his wife. But there was no one wearing one of these orange vests tr- trying to get in his way, and it went straight through his fingers. 50,000... New Zealand dollars slips straight through his fingers. That's worth about no, so twenty-seven thousand no, no, pounds. No temptation to slip out of the commentary box and slide into the deep wicket area for you then. Well, this was a, a long off. Yeah, tempted, but I thought I'd better describe the what was going on back to the listeners to the UK. That was my that was my first job. It's very hard to nip, nip round in, in time. Well, you, well, you could take that portable uh, device, can't you? <laughs> that does those uh, on-field interviews. And, and actually take that out to deep mid-wicket, get the vest on, and commentate on yourself taking a great catch. Do you know, Simon, that is not a bad idea for when the test matches come round. I hope they're still doing it for the test matches. I might well suggest that to the producer. There's not going to be enough <laughs> enough sixes in, in the test matches to make it worthwhile, though. But actually, it wouldn't be a bad place to just commentate from generally, would it? It would be uh, quite a nice atmosphere down there. Um, I, obviously, the setting was was quite rural. The uh, England approach was pretty clinical. Uh, I, I just suppose I'd like to pay a bit of a tribute to Chris Wokes, who was man of the series for England and just kept taking early wickets. And we talk about the sort of one-off natures of one-day cricket and the, the non-memorability of them and the fact that themes don't really develop. But there was one in the series with Martin Guptill against Chris Wokes. Guptill New Zealand's opening batsman, often able to make really big scores. He's got several scores in the sort of 180s bracket in one-day cricket. He can get New Zealand up to 400. But Wokes just tamed him totally by getting him out a couple of times early in the series when he tried to go over the top in that way that he likes to do. And by the end of the series, he was looking really quite tentative and uncertain. And Wokes looks totally dependable as as England's opening bowler in one-day cricket. Yeah, he's come back really well, injured for the Champions Trophy, missed the last Test match against Australia in the Ashes series with what we thought might be a recurrence of the injury he had in the English summer. But he looks fit and he's bowled really well. He's been tidy in those first five overs. He's been very difficult to to get away. If you look at his figures in the first five overs, you know it's, it's one for 14. It's two for 16, it's one for 13, it's one for 19. You know, New Zealand just unable to get away. And not just Guptill, but also Colin Munro, who is a dangerous hitter, Munro, unorthodox. He likes that whip off his hip, 
that often sails for six. England completely snuffed him out as well. He had a terrible time of it. And often New Zealand were two wickets down before they'd been able to develop their innings. And it was left to to Ross Taylor a couple of times to to keep them in the series. That's that's the point I was trying to make in in a way that it felt as though England had a, overall, had a stronger team man for man. They were a stronger team. But suddenly it was was 2-2. And and largely thanks to Ross Taylor. And, And New Zealand, of course, did miss him in the, the final game and they missed him in the Wellington match as well so that was a, a bonus for him you know, underrated player in, in some senses but a real top performer for New Zealand that 181 he made in Dunedin was a fantastic innings because 80 of them were made on, on one leg and he, you know, he was probably struggling coming into the match as well so brilliant innings that was a really memorable game in Dunedin actually and it just made me think about one day international cricket which you know gets slated a bit oh it's a you know it's a stale form of the game well what a fluctuating game 267 for one England oh they're going to get 380-400 didn't even get to 340 New Zealand two for two and they knocked them off with a degree of comfort after a stunning innings from Taylor and Root and Best have made hundreds as well. Fabulous cricket. It's been a, a really good one-day series. And ultimately, just looking at the stats as well, a brilliant winter for England in one-day cricket with the World Cup 14 months or so away. And an embarrassment of riches in the batting order because, you know, Bairstow with those two hundreds and that, that last hundred, I mean, it was just brutal. The way flayed Ish Sodi, the, the leg spinner over the top, and it basically he was on a mission, I think, to, to finish the game early because he was smashing it out of the ground. It, it, it makes you wonder really how, why it took England so long to get him into the one-day side. He really was only in it properly in that Champions Trophy semi-final last summer. And since then, he's looked like opening the bat into the manor born in one-day cricket. does make you think, is he an option for England in test cricket batting as high up the order as that? And, and, and who do England leave out now that, that you know, they've got Roy, Hales and Bairstow in the top three, potentially? Well, Hales is the man, clearly, who's going to miss out. He's not such a strong fielder as the other two. And... <laughs> The other two have taken their opportunities. It's, I think it's as simple as that. Roy came back into the side after Ben Stokes's incident in, involving Hales as well down in Bristol. Roy took his chance straight away. Of course, that amazing score in the Australian One Day Series in the, in the first match of the series. He, he did miss out on Saturday because he had a back spasm, but I expect him to come back when England play their next One Day International. And Bairstow scored 400 since he's been called back into the side as an opener. We were thinking, how do they get Bairstow into the side? And in the end, the only way they could get him into the side was at the top of the order. And it looks now, first it was Jason Roy who, who was pushed aside, but now it looks as though it's going to be Alex Hales who's going to lose out. It's interesting with Hales. Yeah, I mean, he, he played on Saturday, made 61, did fine, you know, no criticism at all, did, did really well in that opening partnership. But, of course, it's the really big scores that, that people notice. And Bairstow, you know, took all the headlines with the way he played. Hales just had an outside chance of getting 100. He had to get lots of the remaining runs. And you could see his frustration when he whacked one straight to mid-wicket and had to drag himself off. He, he knew he'd missed a bit of an opportunity. Now, while that uh, series has been going on, also uh, another interesting series going on in South Africa, the South Africa-Australia series, which is nip and tuck, and uh, obviously controversy both on and off the field. Uh, I think I've caused a bit of a stir by sort of trying to celebrate David Warner's 
attitude on the field, the passion that he shows. Obviously, he oversteps the mark a little bit at times and gets into personal territory with some of his sledging. But I just like the way that he carries himself on the field because he's so aggressive, because he cares so much. And he's someone who's compelling to watch, whether he's in the field or batting. And Obviously, it's caused some controversy off the field and he had to be sort of restrained in that potential confrontation with Quinton de Kock and there's been lots of debate about whether the stump mic should be turned down or turned up. Johnny Bairstow saying that something has to be done about it because uh, there is a temptation for players otherwise to use the stump mics to circulate apocryphal or even made up stories about players that can then be picked up in the media and developed into something rather more serious. He was alluding, of course, to the way the Australians talked about his alleged head-butting incident in the, the Perth nightclub, which really kind of undermined not only England's first test, but really the whole of the ashes. So, I, you know, what's your view on, on Warner? Uh, slightly different from yours, I think, uh, Simon. I think Adam Gilchrist summed it up really nicely, didn't he? So he's either the bull or the reverend, and there's nothing much in between. Well, I think there needs to be something in between with Warren. I think it's been a, a, a real sort of wake-up call for him, what's happened in this series. And, and it, of course, it, it, it's been a follow-on as well, a knock-on that the Sonny Bill Williams mask that the South African supporters have been wearing, which is you know, clearly distasteful as well because it's, you know, it's a jibe at... Warner's wife, why is she being dragged into it? She doesn't need to be dragged well, into it. Why is she being history. dragged into it? Well, the history of that is that she had a liaison with Sonny Bill Williams uh, 10 years ago before Warner and she got together. So, you know, it's irrelevant. But, you know, it's just having a dig at Warner after he put his head above the parapet and got involved and had his say. And it was a way of just getting back at him and then of course the two South African officials had their pictures taken with supporters wearing the Sonny Bill Williams mask and so Cricket South Africa had to apologise to Cricket Australia and no one comes out of this with any credit but I think the bottom line is just shut up on the field just get on play your cricket Warner is a fantastic cricketer you're right he's a brilliantly entertaining batsman he's a wonderful fielder as well he puts everything into it and sometimes in the ashes it was like watching a team with you know an extra fielder because he, he covers so much ground so quickly just let your cricket do the talking goodness <laughs> sake come on <laughs> I love a bit of sledging I think it's hilarious watching how players get riled by each other and you know you can see the steam coming out of their ears I loved it when Glenn McGrath used to uh, you know, stare at a batsman and glare at him and shout but, a few expletives. I, I just think it's it sort of adds a bit to the the whole drama of the Test match. Well, generally, Glenn, uh, he would say this himself. Generally, okay, there were occasions when things went a bit wrong for him. Generally, he would chunter it himself. Actually, he'd be really annoyed with himself as he was walking back to his mark. What I would say is this New Zealand England series. Uh, it's been played in a really good spirit from what I can see. You know, I haven't detected any, any nastiness on the field. There might have been the odd comment. Who knows? It doesn't look like it. And it was a fantastic series. It was a really enjoyable series. Three matches went to the last over. Many of the games were finished with, you know, in dramatic style with a six off the last ball. There were some wonderful innings. There were some really good spells, some brilliant catches. And we're, we're talking about the cricket. The, the, the cricket spoke for itself. Hooray. Have you done any fishing or any... Outward experiences, you know, being whitewater rafting or bungee jumping or, you know, walking up a mountain. That's a very left field 
question, Yoza. Well, we haven't really had time to do any of that. The one-day series, as you know, all one-day series are, are pretty intense. You know, play, then you travel, and there's a practice day, and then you play, and you travel, and there's a practice day. So we're in Hamilton now, chance to just relax a little bit, a, a change of pace, really, one-day cricket into the test match warm-ups. It actually poured with rain all day today in Hamilton, but I think the forecast for later in the week is a bit better as well, and it needs to be as well because England have only got these four days of pink ball and, and red ball cricket to warm up for a, a test series. It's fine if you're in the one-day squad because you've been playing lots of cricket in, in, you know, in the last few weeks, but players are coming into it cold, the likes of, I suppose, Alistair Cook and Mark Stoneman and James Vince, James Anderson, Stuart Broad, players like that, you know, they are, they've got you know, a bit of work to do, a bit of catching up to do to be ready for a test match in a, a week and a half's time. And they've got two two-day matches, one which is going to be played with a pink ball, which is strangely going to be before the one that's going to be played with the red ball. I, I mean, you could argue just play both with a, a pink ball because England first are going to play a, a pink ball test match at Eden Park on Thursday week. Well, we look ahead to the Test Series after the break. I've got an idea, actually, for uh, what they could do instead of demerit points for players who sledge too much or get involved in off-field activities. There's a bungee-jumping experience at the Shotover River in Queenstown, and you can either have the, the wet entry or the dry entry, uh, which obviously the wet entry is head just getting into the water. So I think uh, anyone who transgresses should be sent to the bridge over the Shotover River at this gorge and made to do a bungee jump and have to have a wet entry. Uh, after the break, we're going to look ahead of the Test Series and also hear from Mike Brearley, who's got some thoughts about Joe Roo's <laughs> captaincy and how he might better utilise his fast bowlers. Welcome back. Have you, have you ever done a bungee jump? I haven't, and I have no plans to do one. So it's utterly terrifying. I am scared of heights, so you will not get me to go up right up in the sky and jump off some cliff top or some bridge. Absolutely no chance whatsoever. People are made to be on the ground, two feet on the ground. <laughs> I've done two, actually. I did one at the Shotover River in Queenstown. And this bizarre uh, event we had once in Durham when uh, Ian Botham was involved with Durham playing, that was, in, in the early 90s. And we had this uh, event one night at a pub in somewhere like Hortonley Spring where they put a massive crane up in the car park and we all had to do a bungee jump sort of overlooking the, the, the Durham moors uh, on, a, on a freezing night in sort of April or May to raise a few funds for... I've forgotten what the uh, actual charity was, but it was quite an entertaining experience. Of course, Beefy didn't actually do it. He mm. didn't go in the, the cage and, and up, up into the crane and plumb it to, the, to earth, but I was forced into it. Uh, it wasn't much fun. It's actually worse doing it uh, from a, a, a crane sort of into a car park than it is from <laughs> a very high bridge in a gorge in New Zealand. Anyway, we should just look at England's prospects in this uh, test series to come starting next week. And obviously the, the batting order is one area of, of concern for England. But before we, we think about that, uh, I had a, an event with Mike Brearley last week, a Cricket Alive event. We talked for about an hour and a half about the art of captaincy. Of course, he is England's most successful captain, 60% win ratio, turned series around like that great series in 1981. He's written the seminal book on captaincy as well, The Art of Captaincy, which is still selling. And one thing I asked him was, what did he think about Joe Root's captaincy? Uh, and also, how can he get more out of England's maestro fast bowlers, Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad? I think he's got the makings of a good captain. 
I mean, I think it's difficult for him. He's 24, is he now? 25, yeah. 25, yeah. 24 a year ago. And he was, you know, and I think he's lively. He's intelligent. I think he's... Andrew Flower, Andy Flower said to me, when he was playing, you know, first playing for England, he always plays according to the needs of the game. And he does it more or less naturally. You know, he doesn't do it in exaggerated ways. And so he's a very emotionally intelligent batsman. And I'd say he's probably an emotionally intelligent captain too. I think he was... There were one or two things that I, I was slightly disappointed with in Australia. I think the other thing to say about Australia is I think they outgunned us. They were a better fast bowler. The off-spinner was better than our off-spinner. So they're better bowlers, really, and, they, and they're bowling out gunners. And they, so there's nothing much Root could have done about that, basically. No, but except that you have to make the best of what you can. And I thought there were moments where we didn't really go for things. Now, I don't know, when you've got the other side 130 for 7 or whatever it was, and you don't bowl your two best bowlers after tea when they've only bowled three overs each with a new ball. I think that's a mistake, actually. You have to seize that moment. Another thing about the England team, I think, is that I think Anderson in particular, but Anderson and Broad, are terrific bowlers. Anderson's the best swing bowler I think I've ever seen. And, you know, consistently. And he can, he's a magic bowler. You know, he's a beautiful bowler. But they always want defensive fields. They want mid-wickets, extra covers, deep square third men. They don't want three slips. They won't bowl to hit the stumps or Anderson. He'll bowl over the wicket to left-handers, beat the bat, beat the bat, beat the bat. What about this ball that's going to get them out, LBW or bold? You know, there's something about the attitude where they could be even better, in my view. And, And that's, you know, if both of them was, had their, you know, was bowling now with their... With Anderson's skill, I mean, and his own skill, of course, which was comparable, but not quite that. He was a different body. He was a bit quicker. It wasn't as precise. It wasn't as precise. And he didn't bowl the inswinger much or as well. Um, But, you know, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't, you you couldn't have seen deep third men and deep square covers and long legs in mm. the first few overs for the hook shot. He would be, he'd be saying, I'd get him caught at short leg. Or... Well, in fact, when he bowled and he got top-edged and hooked and stuff, he still wanted the men in because he thought he'd done the bloke. Even when he'd yeah, nailed and, it and for six, he well, still thought, I'll give him another yeah, one, didn't he? And, and they might get caught out there. And, yeah. and they might get caught at square leg just as well. Or yeah. they might get gloved at short leg. You know, another thing, you know, we play in the test match at Old Trafford. It's not going to do very, it's a flat pitch. They win the toss. Not, you know, we're not going to do very well, but Anderson's bowling, left-hand opening batsman, it might have been Warner, it might have been somebody else, I can't remember, and no short square leg. Mm. First over, boom, boom, up in the air. Actually, Anderson almost caught it following through. It would have been a dolly for short leg. No short leg. Now that, you see, I'm talking about optimism, as you mentioned earlier, and looking looking ambitiously to take wickets, especially when you have an inkling of a chance. So, I mean, it sounds... It's a good thing I wasn't a commentator because, you know, I might have become an arrogant old, you know, person like Fred Truman. Uh, how can he bowl then the ball like this in York? He wouldn't have got any Yorkshire nets. You know, about Willis. He said that about Willis. Did he? Willis took three wickets in and over. <laughs>
So Mike really there making a, a good point, actually, about how England might just be a bit more aggressive with their opening bowlers and perhaps not allowing Anderson and, and Brawl to set the field so much. They are, of course, maestro opening bowlers. They're the most successful England test bowlers of all time, deservedly so. Anderson, in particular, is an absolute genius with the ball, you know, making it, persuading it one way or the other and having this incredible fingertip control with his, his movement and his, his accuracy. Sometimes, I just think, and, and this happened obviously in the Adelaide Test match, for instance, sometimes they don't bowl quite full enough, they don't like going for runs, and sometimes when the ball's moving around a bit, swinging a bit late, you have to actually almost bowl half volleys to encourage the batsman to drive, knowing that the old one might go for four, but you also might pick up an edge and have those more aggressive field settings with the three slips, but they just prefer generally to have the two slips and you know a third man or an extra cover or something and try and deny the batsman runs. And it's going to be interesting to see if Joe Root has the authority or indeed the idea to perhaps go a little bit more aggressive. What's interesting about that, of course, is you get two types of batsmen, don't you? You get aggressive batsmen and you get defensive batsmen. And do you criticise defensive batsmen for the way they play and say, oh, they should play loads of shots. I mean, if you say to Jeffrey Boycott when, when he was playing, oh, come on, Jeffrey, you should have played a lot more shots. So just appreciate his brilliance and allow him to play in the way that he played. You know, are you trying to turn Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad into bowlers that they're not? If that's the method they've used over the years, and clearly it's been successful. I mean, Jimmy Anderson is you know, going to be probably the most successful pace bowler of all time. And that's, you know, that's remarkable. And that we're saying, actually, they need to change the way they bowl. Is it too harsh a criticism? Well, it's, it, it's, it's not too harsh a criticism. I mean, England have to get the most out of their players. And at the moment, the, the batting has been fallible. They've failed to produce enough runs generally, which obviously is is their fault. But as a result of that, the bowlers have got to get more out of themselves. And these guys are, you know, absolutely the best bowlers England have ever produced in terms of seam bowlers. And somehow England just need to get another 10% out of them, I think, which means they might go for a few more runs, but they've got to take more wickets. And they didn't take the wickets consistently in the Ashes. I mean, the pitches obviously were pretty flat. The ball absolutely did nothing. They're going to be using the, the Kookaburra ball in New Zealand as well, although the pink one might just do a little bit more. I don't know. I just think maybe take, take a few more risks to speculate to accumulate. And Stuart Broad's been working on his action between series as well. He's been putting his uh, putting videos of himself bowling on Twitter. What's he trying to do there? Trying to get the ball to go away from the batsman as it did in, yeah, I mean that, when he was that's younger? that's absolutely right. Yeah, I, I mean, he, he's always had this action which tends to make the ball go into the right-handers because he doesn't really get his shoulder, his left shoulder doesn't really get into the, to the delivery. He's more of an arm bowler, really. And he, he tends to angle the ball in. And he's done that even more since becoming very proficient against left-handers from round the wicket, where his wrist cocks slightly to 11 o'clock and he angles the ball away from the left-handed batsman from round the wicket, which does make you get into slightly bad habits if you're then trying to make the ball move away from a right-hander from over the wicket. So he's been trying to work on the shoulder position and the wrist position to try and get that ball to leave the right-hander, because that is the dangerous ball in the end. It's good to have the, the in-swinger, the one that can nip back and get batsman LBW or bold, but if you've only got that, then batsman can allow for it. So you do need the one that, that leaves the batsman as well. 
England's batting inevitably will be under scrutiny during the Test Series. Question marks over James Vince, if indeed he's selected, because Ben Stokes has got to come back into the side, so they've got to fit him in. Clearly he will come back into the side. Where does he bat? I wonder whether Ben Stokes should bat at five. That would allow England to play Mason Crane or a second spinner in the future. You know, in, in the future, how do they get Mason Crane into the side? You could replace Mo and Ali. I suppose if England were really strong on batting with the likes of Wokes and Bairstow and, uh, and Stokes in their middle and lower order. But they, they, ha- they have got s- some problems to solve. Uh, Mark Stoneman were clearly open. What about Milan at three and Stokes at five? Yeah, well, in my fantasy world, which is slight, obviously slightly blinkered at times, I, I'd like to see Bairstow open the batting. I just think he'd be a fantastic foil for Alistair Cook, right-handed, more aggressive, busy between the wickets, taking the bowlers on, a bit like Michael Slater used to for Australia, getting the innings off to a, a brisk and an aggressive start. Obviously, if he opens the batting, it means he can't really keep wicket. So then how do England... Uh, overcome that problem and I, I guess it's you know has Bairstow done much opening the batting against a red ball probably not so it's it would be a risk and it's not going to happen immediately but I just think he's such a class player he's got such an ability he's got great technique he's got great hands he intimidates the bowlers when he's on form he can destroy a bowling attack and bat a long time batting at seven seems a complete waste so he's got to be in that top six um, how do England overcome it if Bairstow were to bat up the order? Well, they could bring in Ben Folkes, who has a decent first-class record as a batsman, averaging over 40. So lots of stuff to play for. I guess Stoneman will be the man in residence to open the batting initially, but he's under pressure. Yep, and he admitted that today. I spoke to him today. He said 10 test matches is enough to judge a player and whether they're, they're good enough to play international cricket. He averages 27 after eight matches he's got two games out here and I think he, he senses that he, he knows he's got to produce you know, he'd love to score of course he would he'd love to score his maiden test 100 he's made 350 so far two of them in the ashes I mean he, he showed at times in the ashes that he's got something about him and now of course he's got to go on he used Alistair Cook's example of the, the double hundred in in Melbourne of that sort of real tough-mindedness that you have to have at, at test level and that's what he wants to to emulate so he'll start at the top of the order. Of all your left-field suggestions, your crackpot suggestions, best of opening is not the absolute worst, I, I have to say, Simon. There, there's definitely some merit in it. Bairstow, though, I reckon probably, I mean, he, he would say, I'll oh, bat for England wherever they ask me to bat. That's, what he, that's his, his official line. But I think he's, he has said in the past that he wants to play 100 test matches, England's wicketkeeper batsman. Probably, probably he would prefer to bat at six. So Stokes five, Bairstow six, Moen seven, Wokes eight, and that allows you to play Crane and then Anderson and Broad as well. And I, I just wonder with Stokes, as time goes on, it might not happen straight away, but as time goes on, he's good enough to bat at number five. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, England have got problems in the, the top order with Milan going to three, say, or even Root at three. I mean, they might have to revisit that. Milan at four and Stokes at five. That looks like a, a nice balance. But I wonder whether Stokes at five, OK, it does give England six bowlers and people say, oh, that's that's too many. But I just wonder in the future whether Stokes will be less of a bowler, more, much more of a batting all-rounder than a, a genuine all-rounder at the moment, yeah, okay, he can come on and, and you know, try to create some mayhem, but actually the burden is is, is spread out a bit more. And I mean, that's just a thought. I, I just wonder whether Stokes at five might be the long-term solution. 
Well, I think you're right. I think he definitely deserves to bat at five, and that's a good idea. Talking of crackpot solutions, bring Mason Crane into England's side as well, though, in the, te- in the test series. I mean, you know, lo- lovely lad, and no doubt he's got some talent, but he hasn't been showing it too much. Uh, playing in the Lions in the West Indies was totally outbowled by Jack Leach, the Somerset left-arm spinner. You wonder what he's done wrong to, to not be at least considered. And Mason Crane, well, one for 200 in his... Test match debut at the Sydney Cricket Ground, obviously a tough baptism, but really, can England justify including him at the moment? I I don't honestly think so. There is really a problem in English spin circles in trying to find the next guy that England can really trust, because Moen's bowling in the one-day series was steady, but we know he he looked out of it in in the Test series and in the Ashes. He just wasn't good enough. He wasn't able to keep control. He didn't get any real response out of the pitches and Nathan Lyon obviously totally out bowled him so that's something England have to really think about in the next six to 12 months is how they bring on their next spinner well what I would say to that is okay if not Mason Crane then someone else someone like Jack Leach but the point is that Stokes batting at five gives them the option of playing another spinner. It gives them the option of playing a front-line spinner if you say that Moen Ali is the second spinner. So, you know, they, they've given an opportunity to Crane. Yep, he didn't look particularly good in Sydney and he didn't do particularly well in, in the West Indies. Shane Warne, remember, took one for 150 in his first test match. I'm not saying that you know, Crane is anywhere near as good as, as Warren, but they do like him and you know having that leg spinner you can't just write him off having that leg spinner in your side in the future is is, is surely a positive move if you know if he's if he is good enough of course if he's not good enough then it's proved to be not good enough then you know you'd have to take him out of the side but okay it does give you the chance though as i just emphasize that point it does give you the chance of playing a frontline spinner crane jack leach whoever, Stokes batting at five. And I, I agree, I agree. I mean, Mason Crane playing at Auckland where the boundaries straight are very short, OK, might not work, might not be the best idea. I, I accept that. Christchurch might be a bit different. We saw some spin in the one-day match on Saturday and also the boundaries are bigger at Christchurch. So perhaps not Crane for Auckland, Crane possibly for Christchurch. Lots of permutations for England to work on over the next few days in their two warm-up games before the Test match next week. Uh, That's the end of today's show. Just to remind you that you can get your trial set of Harry's razors at harrys.com forward slash the analyst. So good watching, good working and good shaving this week. Thanks for listening. Podcast Network.